Hello, welcome back. We are recording another episode of Why It Works today, and our focus is going to be home languages and languages across the curriculum. Welcome back, Joe and Rob. Um, what, would you, what is language across the curriculum approach, and why do you think it's so important? Okay, so um, languages across the curriculum, I think it's really important because it, it needs to be embedded across all the different subjects that we're, that we're teaching, and it's a fundamental part of all of all the different subjects and I think when you're planning and when you're teaching you may be not as aware of how much vocabulary and language you've got in each of your lessons especially since they've uh, the change in the national curriculum 2014 for primary especially the level of content that we're expected to as teachers teach our our children um, in each year has um, has massively increased and I think it's it's key that we've got a handle on just what that looks like before we teach it. So I do a lot of talking about knowing the sequence that you're going to teach and have broken down the the vocabulary that you're going to be using across that sequence. And then by doing that, you're looking at the, the language that you're using in each lesson, what that language is, how are you going to um, explain it, how are the children going to understand it, how are they going to access it, is there any pre-teaching that you need to do? Um, so that they can do that, so that they're not exposed to the language for the first time in the lesson. How are you going to display it? How are you going to have it so that they can retrieve it the next lesson and use it again? So I think I think it's a much bigger area than perhaps teachers um, think it is and maybe allocate, they don't allocate maybe as much time in the preparation for teaching it as we need to. And when you kind of drill down and you read around it, there's, it's a lot more involved um, than I think people initially think. Yeah, definitely. Rob, what would you say? Yeah, well, I obviously just agree with, with Joe. And um, I guess we take language for granted in the curriculum in all phases. Um, so we often think about how we maybe plan, prepare, deliver, assess subject knowledge and skills, but language develops in tandem with subject understanding and with those higher level cognitive skills. So if we're not planning for language, we're slowing down the rate at which children can learn. And I think that's really important. So all this stuff about making sure that, that language is part of the planning all the way across the curriculum is also about making sure that learning can happen as effectively as possible. Right. OK, yeah. Um, and we talk about translanguaging. Um, it's a word we see a lot on Twitter, um, a lot in the academic world. And I guess it's sort of creeping into schools now and people are using it more. Um Rob, can you talk to us about what translanguaging is? Um... Yeah. Can we start with what it isn't, perhaps? So <laughs> translanguaging theory, it, it originated in Wales in the work in Williams, looking at um, alternating input and output languages of Welsh English bilingual children. So you might read something in Welsh and speak about it in English or, or uh you know, speak about something in uh, English and then write up your notes in Welsh. And it was a way of maintaining both languages to a high level of proficiency. Lots of people have done work on it since. Two big schools of thought, although they, they overlap, are Leeway's work, which is more about language in the brain, and Ophelia Garcia's work, which is much more about the kind of social context of language use and empowering multilingual and often marginalised speakers, particularly starting from her work in New York. So we have these different ideas tied together in translanguaging. First of all, we've just got using all children's languages. That's that's the starting point. Can we create space for their first languages in the classroom? Not just, and you know, 
you know, this is a bugbear of mine, not just putting the word welcome in 20 languages around a reception area, but actually making space for it in the curriculum. So children are doing things with their language. If the word translanguaging seems a bit off-putting, if it seems a bit academic or, or like you've got to just dive into it um, to do anything, I would start with that, thinking about how can I create space, purposeful space. And as Joe said, this is just part of your everyday planning for language across the curriculum, for children to use their own languages for learning. That can be in a small way, it can be in a big way, and you can grow it at your own pace. That's really important. As we go into, I think, how most people think of translanguaging, Really, it's about not worrying about the boundaries between language. In that famous phrase, it's using the students' full linguistic repertoire, all the language resources they have at their disposal, without regard for watchful adherence to those boundaries. So we might say, moving between what we call English and French, or, or, or Punjabi and Swahili, or whatever you choose. But crucially, it's about not worrying where those boundaries are. And that bit, I think, there's really good reasons to, to support that approach, but it's a big step for an education system that is monolingual where teachers the teacher standards require us to be a good model of spoken and written English to now say we're not going to worry about those boundaries <laughs> that's a that's a plunge into the deep end for a lot of people and I just if you're worried about translanguaging I would just start from can I make space for children's language in the curriculum in a meaningful way not not just to make them feel better although it will but actually to help them learn it and then say, right, how can I toy with this? How can I expand my own thinking about it? How can I create more space for it? And then you might look back and think, oh, I think I'm doing this translanguaging thing after all. But I, my, my worry is that it it's such a big term for a lot of people that the baby goes out of the bathwater and we, we don't create even small spaces for children to use their languages, which we know really, really empowers learning. Yeah. I think like the fear can take over, can't it? Joe, think... what sort of um, small steps might people take in the classroom yeah I think what Rob said I think you've got to start small and it doesn't have to be a great big scale I mean it's quite a long academic word it's pretend I've had lots of people ask me what it means when I use it um so I think maybe moving away from thinking of it in that way and just as Rob said making a space for how can how can you involve all the languages you've got in your classroom so in terms of things that I've done in my classroom that have been successful so a world map is a really good way to start all sorts of conversations so um, we used to talk about where people were from where they've been on holiday where their parents live where their families live where they travel to then we used to that kind of led into languages and then we'd talk about um, the names of the countries and different languages would label that. So that's a good um, a world map or a display like that is a, a really good way of um, kind of prompting all these kind of really enriching conversations. Um, so that might be a, a small way you want to think about it. Uh, I know lots of schools and classrooms do word of the week or word of the day. Um, and I saw a really good one the other day where they'd got word of the week, but then they'd, they'd they just had the word of the week and they'd had it in English and then they had a space next to it and they just said, what's this word in your language? And everyone had just come up and written, children, families, you know, parents, carers, everybody had just been, it was on the, on the way into the classroom. So they could just, as they went in, they kind of just checked in by, you know, writing it. Um, and that's a really small way um, to start getting the languages um, that you've got in your classroom represented and exposes all the children I think this is really important to see the other languages so for your monolingual children who may not be so aware that there's all these other different languages out there and that their classmates can can speak them um, I think that's a really important message for them to be um, seeing 
as well. I wonder if there's ways though um, to go to the next step for people as well. So those are really important ways of recognizing the languages in the classroom. And, and it has a, you know, we know it has a really negative effect on children. If they can't see this big part of who they are, if they can't see it in the school, yeah. then then they get the message very clearly, this school isn't for them. And, you know, children do, when they, especially when they're in research studies and they can speak to someone outside their, their school, outside their teachers, they're very, very quick to talk about this. The bit that I think is really interesting, a bit more challenging, is how can you create space for that in learning so how can um, classroom activities happen through different languages and I think you know it's just the next step after after that um, that starting point you recognize the languages you're showing there's a space for them now show there's a space for them for meaningful things real things so it might be you just let pupils annotate whatever they're doing could be a poem could be a worksheet a diagram let them annotate it in whatever language they want that's just a tiny toe in the water but it shows their languages are more than just welcome it's that they they have a place in learning and we might go further i just you know we're big fans on this podcast i know of the work of pauline gibbons and her fantastic but we'll put a link i'm sure in the in the notes um, for her fantastic book scaffolding language scaffolding learning which you can get online for a couple of quid secondhand or from your favorite death star everything seller um and she she gives this sequence of very i think quite famous sequence of moving from um children talking about uh, it's a science experiment they're doing the magnets and the iron filings um and then the the language they use is really embedded in that context it's all impossible to make sense of separately so oh yeah no move that bit oh, oh look so it oh yeah and you can't you can't make sense of that by itself and then you you have the next just sentence extract, which is when they're reporting it to the class. And then the next one is their write-up. And then the next one is, you know, how this is described in, in a children's encyclopedia. And you can see the way the language shifts and look at the features and, and how it becomes more formal and more written-like. But one way to really adapt that is to think, where could different languages be incorporated? So you could just say, and you have to model it to an extent, but you could just say, when you're doing your classwork in a small group, use whatever language you want or make notes in whatever language you want. When you're speaking back to the class, speak in English, but fall back as much as you want, switch in and out as much as you need to. When you're writing up, we might do a draft where you write it in English, but then you maybe annotate it or you put a little comment in there saying, como se llama this? You know, like, what does this word mean? How do we say this? So you could sort of use your languages to, to comment on it, to, to keep going when you couldn't otherwise. Classic scaffolding, really. And then the final version, we say, we want this in your best English. You could even do a bilingual version if you wanted to. And that's really powerful because one thing I think people really worry about is, are we going to get to high quality written English at the end of it? Is using other languages, is translanguaging going to hold kids back from high quality English output? The evidence is, is very, very clear that it doesn't. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, oracy in different languages, drafting, preparing ideas in different languages really supports high quality output in English because it's scaffolding. It's not an either or. It's both together really, really work. So thinking in that way, if you want to move from recognising children's languages, which I agree is, is the absolutely essential first step to getting it into the curriculum, by the time 
someone from SLT comes to a learning walk and picks up a few of your books, that multilingualism can be as visible or invisible in those books as you want it to. It could all be on, you know, worksheets, classwork, board work. Um, if you're teaching in a context where you think that using children's first languages wouldn't be welcome, you can fit it in really well with what you've got to do. You, you're, you're not going to get yourself in trouble with SLT. Um, you're not going to be forced to answer questions that you're not quite ready for, but you can still have those spaces in it. Of course, if you have got a senior leadership team who will recognise the value of this work and the evidence is absolutely four square behind you, um, then it's really good to be able to show how quickly children can develop their English if you're able to use all their different languages. I mean, post-it notes would be a good idea as well, wouldn't it? Brilliant idea. Yeah, where, you, where you can put it around the edges. I'm going to steal that one. <laughs> we talk about all the time as well don't we in, in school and education and teaching how you you know schemas and you link things mm -hmm. to what you know already and you build on kind of the experience that you have so if you're tackling something in English why wouldn't you why wouldn't it be a good idea to draw on all the languages that you have of course of course that's what you're going to do and if I was presented with something in a language that I didn't understand I'm going to bring all the knowledge I've got of all the languages that I have to that piece of piece of work to help me understand it one of the things we do in training I do quite often with training teachers I I put up a piece of a text it's usually a word problem and I put it in a different language that I know n none of my trainees can speak um, and I say right solve solve that and I just leave it there um, and then we unpick it and we talk about what they've brought to that piece of text and okay they can't speak that language but they've got all knowledge of different words and parts of words and meanings in other languages and knowledge of different languages they brought it all to unpicking about and we usually get a good a good way into unpicking what that um what that word problem is asking us to do so i just see it like that why wouldn't you bring everything that you have to to a piece of work that's exactly just how i see it so to me it just makes common sense and when I've done it in the classroom, it's worked, but I haven't necessarily known that it had a fancy name or that it, it you know, that's what it was called. But then you look back on it, you think, oh, right, OK, yeah, that's why that worked then. I, I, to me, it's just why wouldn't why wouldn't you use it? It makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, I think that's that's such a powerful way of putting it as well. It's just it's not it's just good sense. It, once once you is there anything you, you, you never know um, how people but where people are when they're listening to this. So I think some people listening to it will see this as absolutely obvious. Of course, we want to promote all these languages. And maybe we'll go and talk about that translanguaging fully later. But, you know, we do know that a lot of people, this is this is something that is a bit of a leap. Yeah. And I, I, it's such a great way of putting it. Why would you, why would you not, um, why would you not use all the children's language resources, all the knowledge they bring in, the skills they bring in? Yeah, I love that. Definitely. It'd be like going to high school, wouldn't it? And saying, well, you can't use any of your primary knowledge. You've just got to do everything without, you know, you've got to bring all that prior knowledge, haven't you? Definitely. Well, well I think like, you know, this, this whole thing about what language should families speak at home and, you know, you should always speak English at home, which is fine in principle. But if you think if you pick me up and drop me in, I don't know, Beijing and said, right, got apparently kids in Chinese now. I mean, where would I even begin? But yet the other way around, we, we would say the same. And I think a similar thing happens. Joe, I wish I was in that training session because it, it sounds really fun where, where you just drop everyone in with another language and start speaking to them in you know, whatever language it is. Of, of course I would fall back on 
English and try and use English to make sense of, of what you were saying. Like, how else, how else would I do it? So immersion is really, really powerful. Um, and I think immersion often, there's a better argument for immersion in MFL because we have limited hours and you want to maximize exposure and, and thinking about the evidence-based principles we've been talking about all the way through these episodes. Lots and lots of exposure to language, opportunities to use it and use it for something meaningful. That's really important. But for, for bilingual children, for EAL children, you know, they're in this country, they're exposed all the time. They're getting massive exposure in the playground at lunchtimes and so on. In the classroom, I think we want to focus on a much more structured, purposeful use of language because this is the one bit that no one else can add. They've got all kinds of exposure to English, but are they getting well-structured, explicit, intentional teaching of language all the way through the curriculum? And they're not. And if you're not getting intentional, explicit language teaching, you're not gonna you're not gonna learn the kind of language that you need. It's you know, academic language, as the saying goes, is nobody's mother tongue. You're not just gonna acquire it by being in school, you'll acquire all the other stuff, the social English. So using your class time to really drill in on what language the children need to learn, how does it work, and how can their other languages support them to get it, absolutely top quality. Um, another idea as well, if you um, ask the students to maybe write in their own language, say an analysis of something or a write-up, would it be okay for them to then translate it, maybe copy and paste it and translate it into something, you know, back into English? Would that be an option? Is there any good translation apps that you'd be able to do that with? I think, um, yeah, I think just using everything that they've got. So whether that's you write it in their home language, they write it in English, you translate it back, you... I just think it's allowing them and encouraging them to, to do that. Um, there's a few good um, language uh, translation apps. Um, DeepL Translate is, is quite a good one. Um, I think that's the one I would recommend. Um, and that sometimes if you can just use that and you can teach them to use it on their own, that that is just enough for them to just, when they need it, it's not that everything has to be, I think sometimes people think, oh, we're going to translate everything into mm-hmm. that language. So then, you know, that will that was that will help. Um, and I don't think they need, you know, they don't all necessarily need everything translated. They just need no. to know that if they're stuck maybe on one particular bit or a phrase or a word, they can do it themselves. And when I've taught children to to use apps like that, um, it's just a little light bulb moment in their faces. But they've done it themselves. I haven't had to sit there and, and translate, you know, everything. Um, I think that's really powerful if you can give if you can show them how to use those tools to support them um with their own work i think that's that's really powerful yeah yes. so a few, a few things come to mind first one is i absolutely agree with you joe <laughs> um <laughs> and and where students can um use use apps like that purposefully then then it's really really powerful mm. um and it, I suppose that goes to just trusting them to make good decisions about which language to use. You know, their languages aren't a threat, they're not a distraction. It's just part of how they make sense to it. And of course, you know, they're going to come out of these schools. And what we want is young people who can work in different languages, you know, across the world. The, the government keeps telling us we've, we've got to make new trade connections and export, but at the same time tells us, for goodness sake, don't learn to do anything powerful with your languages. So we've got that contrast. And, and thinking ahead to when they leave school, what are they going to be using their languages for? Well, hopefully for everything that they can use English for and vice versa. 
So if we start off by saying, look, you can make good decisions and our focus perhaps is not on policing use of first language, but on you know, getting students to make good decisions about how they use it, then, then for sure. The other one that, that um, strikes me is that consistency is really, really key. So we're, we're talking about bilingual children in the abstract here, of course. You, know, you could be in primary or secondary or, or you know, different backgrounds, different levels of, of education for the children coming into your school. You could have a really well-established bilingual community or kids arriving from Ukraine, you know, or, or kids arriving from Afghanistan. They might have age-appropriate education. They might have not, you know, you know what I'm trying to say, that the, the variety of different learner experiences and needs are huge. What's really important then is, is making it absolutely consistent um, Ideally, as a whole school approach, I know that's a, a big ask a lot of the time, but um, if you do have a school approach, as you might to anything else, to behaviour, to literacy, you know, this is how we're going to do it to really drive up um, or drive home those messages, then then that will be much more effective than doing it in your own classroom. But it's still worth doing in your own classroom. So it might be that um, children are allowed to use translation apps very freely in certain types of activity or certain stages of the class and so on. And they know when those are. And they also know what's going to happen if they don't. So, you know, they, you know, kids have iPads or phones on the desk, then there's always going to be those distractions. So making sure it's really, really consistent and, and making sure that they know how to make those decisions. So when do you need to um, ask? When is it better to just keep going and, and leave a gap? When is it better to use the app and so on? All of these things to think of. And, and, and it, to be honest, you know, I wouldn't worry about having any hard and fast rules or principles for this one. I, I just, if you're opening space for different languages and, and you're comfortable with, with kind of monitoring what kids are doing to an age appropriate way, just get going because you'll refine it as you go. And each class will be so different that I wouldn't say there's anything that we would say is, um, correct me, Joe Helen, if you think, but there's there's nothing. I'd say no. I'm getting some head shakes across the video link here. <laughs> um, nothing that I'd say is is you know do or die, like absolutely must do recommendations. So you've 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 got kids who who are able to make purposeful decisions. They're sometimes they're um, um, using words or phrases that you've supplied. Other times, particularly when they're composing, they might be encouraged to to do a little bit of translation. But it's really really consistent. And then building from that, well, the thing, what translation could do, it's really good for keywords. It's much less good for longer bits of text. Yeah. So when it's a bit longer, they might want to just draft it bilingually, correct a few words, but then they definitely want to work with a partner or work with you to try and refine that language. And just worth suggesting, I mean, I've got no idea if this is true or not, but it does feel like anything we say about use of apps has got a shelf life on it. Um. The really interesting thing is going to be how do students cope with AI that can do competent mm -hmm. first drafts? Mm -hmm. and, and certainly in a university context, we're coming to terms with the fact that, um, you know, our, our students' essay is going to be, you know, do they just put them into chat GPT? Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I don't know about others, the consensus seems to be emerging that if we try and control that out of the system, it's going to happen anyway. It's a losing mm -hmm. battle, much better to think of ways that we can incorporate that and, and teach students to build on those skills. And as with every innovation, how can we do it? How can we teach students to, to build on it? The idea that we can control children's languages out of the system is, 
you know, it's an absolute loser. So how can we build on what they do? How can we teach them to make purposeful, good decisions, even in early primary about it? How can we get them to use their languages consistently to be powerful? Because that's what we want. Powerful communicators, knowledgeable people, skilled people who can use their languages for all this stuff. Joe, have you got anything to add to that? I think um, the AI is, I think it's interesting. And I think I agree with Rob. We've got to embrace it. It's going to happen. It's going to happen anyway. And schools are going to, particularly maybe secondary schools and universities and things, have got to think about how how that works and what that looks like. But um, my husband's a teacher, a secondary teacher. I'm sure he won't mind. He was telling me the other day he was using it to provide a bit of a scaffold and a model for some of the children that were um, needing a bit more support with that um, kind of a model answer for something. And he said, I could, um, you know, he could write in and it could give you a whole complete perfect answer. Um, but he said, I'm going to use it to, to model, to show them what it, what it could look like um, rather than being, rather than being scared of it. I think we've got to mm. embrace it. They're going to use it. They're going to use it anyway. So we, we need to teach them how to use it effectively. How are we going to use it? We're probably going to use it in our, in our own lives. I'm sure there's ways we can use it to, to speed processes up and get things done quicker. Um, I used it the other day to generate a reading list for something that I was, that I was working on. Well, that would have taken me ages to, you know, I could have trawled through all the journals, but you know, it gave me a list so why wouldn't I why wouldn't I use that it probably saved me three hours of my debt you know so I think we we do the same as adults so I think it's yeah. teaching them how to use things how to embrace it and use it effectively when it's appropriate to do that and when it's obviously not appropriate to do that but that's the same with anything I think yeah definitely um one of my other questions was going to be about um sort of content subject teachers like science maths um history even where they've got sort of heavy content um and sort of what approaches they might start using sort of in like a secondary setting. So what sort of things could they be doing this week maybe to begin that language across the curriculum approach? So Monday morning or tomorrow morning, whenever you listen to this, go into your classroom and say hello in all the languages your students speak and you will sound and feel probably very ridiculous. Um and I'm sure you will get uh, gales of laughter and, you know, lots of correction. But actually looking looking a bit silly with this stuff. You can go and say, mm. you just, just, just walk in and say, I'm out of my comfort zone here, but I'm going to really try and say this right. Um, just that, that switch in the power balance for a moment that says... Um, I, you know, I want, I want to be able to do this stuff, but I can't. Because it's just about saying hello. It's not... It's not calling into question your your subject expertise, your authority in the classroom. You're just allowing that little bit of space. Um, and so when when your learners struggle to say something, you've got that equality. They're also struggling and now they can admit their struggles. And I think that's a really safe way, a really safe way just to create that bit of space. You can ask pupils, how do you say that in your language? So, you know, you might say, how, how do you say that in diary? And they'll tell you. And you just look at the class and go, oh, no, I mean, that sounds plausible. Could have said anything. Is that right? And all of a sudden you've got students. You know, it's just these little momentary things. You've got the students now commenting on each other's language use. And you could even say, are there any other words? Now, you're not in control of that yeah. in the sense that you don't know if it's the right or wrong answer. You're having to rely on their 
expertise about what they're experts on but you're still in control of the structure of the space of the interactions you're you're still you know inviting other people to speak and so on so you're not giving anything up you're just you're in, in your own authority you're just creating that little bit of space and i think one of the big challenges for people all of us is that we're meant to be authoritative you know teachers teach teachers don't stand at the front of the room and go dunno dunno ask someone else (laughs) so so find those little spaces just take the plunge tomorrow morning get on google translate or whatever depot and just say right how do i say ni hao in chinese whatever with the proper tone with it isn't it doing a register with it absolutely or even as joe said just if you speak any other languages especially ones your students don't speak just go in speaking those languages mm-hmm. and spend the first 90 seconds only speaking to them in another language. And when they look at you like you're crazy, just say, well, I just wanted to give it a go. I know you have to do this. I thought I'd try it out. Anything like that, I think, is a, a really easy and quite fun way to do it and doesn't disrupt the lesson at all for more than 90 seconds. But it just gives this really big signal that you're open to it. Building those relationships, definitely. It helps them feel the expert as well when yeah. they're, you know, for a minute then they're the expert. They know something that the peers don't know. Maybe they know something that you don't know. It's just, a, I just think it's an important kind of leveler to give them the opportunity to to feel something that perhaps they don't feel maybe as much of the time, which is a shame. Mm-hmm. Um, but like Rob said, just opening that space, I think, yeah, it's really important. If you if you wanted to bring it into the curriculum, one place to start, let, let's say math and science. So an awful lot of scientific words have have Latin and Greek roots. Um, same with actually with a lot of literary terms. Um, a lot of algebra words have Arabic roots. So one thing we might do is just take um, a key term. Let's take photosynthesis, which works across a, a very wide range of languages. Um, yeah, this is this works for any subject. And just ask the students to say, right, what is this keyword? So exactly what Joe said before. Um, and you could pop it on the board. And then you might, you know, you might ask the students to make a, a bilingual word list of the key vocabulary. Actually, what you're doing is you're just drawing attention to the, the le- key terms of the lesson. So it's, it's intentional vocabulary across the curriculum works. You know, that's a general good teaching. It's not EAL, but it's just creating that bit of space for multilingualism. Building on that, and this is where I think... You, you get some really powerful teaching. So keywords are a great place to start, but we don't actually think right and speak in keywords. Mm-hmm. We we think right and speak in chunks of language that we that we stick together really. And a, a metaphor for this actually is is building a wall. So we, we tend to we build a wall out of bricks. Here we we build longer stretches of language out of little chunks. Once upon a time, for example, on a dark and stormy night, we don't think of these words. Our brains don't really process these words individually. We process them as little units. And then we tend to just glue them together with grammar. So uh, let's go back to our, our kind of science write-ups. In this experiment, we set out to, it's a nice formal sounding language, but it's just a chunk. It's a phrase that we use. And you swap in the next word depending on what you're doing. So anytime you can get students to think explicitly about what those chunks are and the different languages, Going beyond the key word to the, I'm not going to say sentence, I'm going to say phrase because it, it's, you know, varies, but but that chunk of language. Um, get them to translate that into their first language um, and think, how would it be different? 
And what the answers don't hugely matter in this, but what you're doing is you're asking the students to bring all their thinking to bear. And what they're really doing is they're focusing on the English um, because they can come at it through their other languages. So, you know, you might start, I'm just start this with that, that fab idea of students checking in with their different languages. Then you maybe open your lesson with a bit of, bit of play, a bit of fun, looking a bit silly for a minute. Um, without disrupting the class. And then you maybe bring those keywords into the class and then you build that up into chunks. And by the time you've got there, which could be the end of next week, you've got students explicitly engaged with the really powerful chunks of language that they'll need in English and able to bring their other languages in. And then you're off to the races, you know, you can do anything then. The world's your oyster, as they say. Yeah, or as someone once said to me when I was um, young and working as a a year abroad French assistant at the French high school, this very drunk elderly Englishwoman took me aside and said, young man, le monde votre huitre, um, which doesn't translate anything like the world is your oyster, but I think that's what she's going for. Le monde votre huitre, young man, so you've got to seize it. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't quite translate every time. Um, so, Joe, looking at... Um... So back to translanguaging and resources that people might be able to use. Um, we've recently got some packs online, haven't we, um, for translanguaging. Could you talk through those and how they might be useful in the classroom? Yeah, so we've recently uploaded a, a translanguaging pack. And again, it's it's quite general. It's quite open. It's just opening, like Rob said, opening that space and inviting children to use all their languages. Um, and I think encouraging the, the teachers as well to see that that's, a good thing to do and a, a, a um, you know really helpful thing to do so they're just um, different kind of uh, we've got I think some graphic organizers and just um, just some sort of different activity sheets depending on different subjects that you might you know be writing up I don't know you might be doing a science write-up you might be doing I don't know all different kinds of activities but just the space on that sheet to you write in English here now you write in whatever you want to write in here how do you how do you you know use the two together just having the space on the sheet I think for the teachers gives the message that that's a good idea and that that's something that they can think of and maybe it's not something they thought of before um and for the children I just think it's a really powerful message for them you know we know that you've got these other languages we want you to use them in the classroom it's a sensible thing they don't exist as separate entities um how can we use them how can we use them to to scaffold learning which is basically what that's what we that's what we're doing just through using you know you use all sorts of other resources to scaffold things so why wouldn't you use the languages that they have um so there's a pack on on the site already which i think um yeah if you've not if maybe especially if you've not explored it before you're not sure how to go about it that might be a really good introduction to to ways that you can start thinking about it and then obviously you can develop it develop it further and hopefully over time we'll do some more kind of in-depth um in-depth resources there's also we talked a lot about vocabulary and vocabulary teaching there's also an e um, ealcpd vocabulary kind of powerpoint that talks you through how to explicitly teach vocabulary about the importance of doing that and um, talks about tier one tier two tier three vocabulary um and i think i think maybe one of my biggest messages is when you're planning think about the vocabulary that you're asking the students to use and that you're using that you expect them to understand um using different contexts you know have got different meanings depending on where we're where we're using them and just have an awareness of all of that language going into your 
to your lessons and to your sequence. I know some schools have got um, kind of an overview now. They've got um, curriculum maps where they map out the different vocabulary expectations in different year groups, um, which is really powerful then because you kind of think, right, OK, by the end of year one, for example, these children through science are going to have learned these words. And if you've done that piece of work, then you've got a really clear understanding of, of what the vocabulary is, which I think just makes you think about how you're going to teach it, teach it better. Um, you send um, activities home then as well, pre-teaching, can't you? Well, well, exactly. Then all, and if you've done, you've got that, um, you've done that piece of work. So, you know, the keyword, like Rob said, you know, the phrase, you know, it's not always just keyword, but phrases, you know, chunks of language, what, what things are they going to come across a lot? over this sequence of lessons you know what do you really need them to have a, a good understanding of you can you can send that home you can you know make it into games you can have it on your displays on your working there's all sorts of things you can do with it but I think if you can I, I think the first step for teachers is to identify it and I think we we're so used to just using it just because that's what it's expected and that's what we teach and that's the content um but I don't we probably need to be a bit better at drilling down and say oh actually in this lesson I've used these words these phrases these you know expressions actually look at the language that's involved. and that's just one lesson when you think primary or secondary just doesn't matter you teach six seven lessons back to back throughout the you know as a teacher it's overwhelming as a child it's going to be even more overwhelming so I think I think that's something really important that teachers can can do um that would have quite a big impact I think yeah definitely it's really interesting we've got the um, ELCPD sort of vocabulary powerpoint on there which is really useful i think another good way for cpd is to sort of have you can have learning walks or invite people into your classroom if you're um doing this really well and you're leading on this in school that other educators and other teachers can come into your classroom and you know see it at work as well which is another great way to do cpd isn't it have you got any other ideas on that rob no, <laughs> with half nine o'clock, I think that's a, a fab rundown of all the things we could do. Yeah, um, and we'll just finish on, we've just got um, a question from Facebook, actually, um, asking about language. So somebody's asked, any tips for helping students with academic language or tier two vocabulary? So have you got any advice for that person online? I think... So identify what that vocabulary is and when you use it, when you use it in different contexts, if it's got different um, meaning in different contexts. I think that's that's really important. But also everybody, every, all the children, whether they're bilingual, monolingual, they, none of them are going to pick up that academic language just by osmosis. That You need to explicitly teach that. And it doesn't matter if you can you know, speak five different languages or, or you just speak what it doesn't you've got to you've got to as a teacher you've got to teach that content to everybody so I think I think that's an important thing to think about how how are you going to go about doing that and I think identifying that vocabulary first is probably the biggest first step that you need to take yeah absolutely so I, I would maybe start a step earlier to think about oracy in the curriculum and and how um, children can talk about complex ideas increasingly using the correct language um because that for, for bilingual children especially that's going to really help them to organize their ideas and, and work out what words they want to use that's got to be coupled as joe said with a an intentional approach to um to vocabulary you might want to use isabel beck's work on vocabulary tiers so tier one at the bottom of the pyramid is 
general usage. Tier two is academic, but general academic. And then tier three is subject specific, very, very narrow usage. Um, it was used in a big um, EEF report and vocabulary, so you can find it easily there. So we might think about um, general vocabulary usage. Well, you know, we maybe don't need to be so explicit about that. Tier two vocabulary, so vocabulary is generally useful in academic context. Um, we we want to be making that clear, making sure people have lots of exposure, lots of opportunity to use it and so on. Tier three is what we tend to think of as subject vocabulary. Again, words like photosynthesis, for example. Um, those words are useful, but they're very translatable. They, they have a specific meaning that if you know the concept, you can easily translate it into another language. So I'd be looking at, at really addressing tiers two and three, moving between them perhaps, or just expanding the range of terms to that general academic layer, um, making sure pupils have lots of opportunity to use it verbally and to to talk about the data before they commit them to writing and, and space for doing both languages and the final thing uh, just to extend it really is i'd keep pushing on words in context so while there's value occasionally in, in giving discrete words like if you know what photosynthesis is but you don't know the word given the word that's the key that pupil can move on but they're not going to be able to use that in, in a piece of writing or extended speaking. So just making sure that they have, um, you know, examples where it's used in a sentence or in a paragraph. You might even just in bold or in a color highlight these key phrases. It's really good to help people notice them and let their brains click into them. Um, I wonder if I could give a, a quick plug to a, a project that I, I learned about recently. It's called the Wallow Project, which is short for... Uh, world of languages, languages of the world. It's a collaboration between um, a whole group of schools um, where they're trying to think about ways to teach language itself rather than separate languages. So how can we engage children with how language works, not just in a linguistic sense, but in a way you use it sense that connects between, say, English language as a subject, EAL, uh, MFL and so on, even classics for those schools that, that might have something like that, home languages and so on. Um, I went to their conference a couple of weeks ago in Birmingham and um, one of the pupils spoke so movingly. I'll see if I can find, I think he tweeted about it. I'll see if I can find it for the show notes. He spoke so movingly about how this attention to language and languages just created a space for him to feel that he was part of the school. It was a really emotional response. But also, he said, it's, I just felt so much more at home with my schoolwork, essentially. That that feeling like I, I had roots in the school meant that I didn't have to keep these things separate. And so for him, using his other languages in the curriculum was really about being able to commit himself to, to, to learning and, and to being part of the school and so on. Um, it was, it's a really interesting idea. There are few there through their first few iterations but i know they're still growing and would be really interested to hear from people who want to experiment with these ideas so we'll, we'll put some details in the um in the bio in the notes but yeah absolutely but but just to say that there is a range of innovative innovative work happening um around this idea that that children's languages can be used in the curriculum and uh yeah if, if you're thinking about taking that plunge you're not alone you um a very good company evidence is behind you and um, 
enjoy it. Thank you to both of you. Um, we'll wrap it up there. But um, some really interesting ideas for those people that have already taken sort of a dip into this and then some people that maybe are just going to start, which is really exciting. Uh, thank you for joining us again and we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Helen Bodell from Twinkle EAL. We have over 650,000 resources and you can find all of our EAL resources at www.twinkle.co.uk. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and Pinterest by searching Twinkle EAL. Why not subscribe to our podcast? You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music and redcircle.com. You could also leave us a review. If you have any questions you'd like answering on our podcast, please get in touch on our social channels.